Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am Doug Sweeney here with my co-host Kristen Padilla. And we are delighted to welcome you to another week of encouraging conversation on the web. Today's guest is a longtime and very dear friend of mine who is at Beeson this week, preaching in chapel and speaking to students as part of African American Ministry Emphasis Month. Kristen will introduce you to Dr. Dates momentarily, but before she does, let me make just a couple of announcements. In just two weeks, our annual William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching will begin with Dr. Jared Alcantara of Baylor's Truett Seminary. Dr. Alcantara will be with us March 17 through 19, speaking in Hodges Chapel at 11 a.m. each day. His lectures are free and open to all, and we hope that you will come. Also, on March 23rd, The Robert Smith Jr. Preaching Institute is hosting a Day with a Beeson Author event featuring our own Dr. Gerald R. McDermott, who retires at the end of this academic year. Spend the day with Dr. McDermott as he teaches from his book, Everyday Glory, The Revelation of God in All of Reality, which he spoke with us about on the podcast back on December 17. Registration is limited and costs $25, which includes a copy of his book, lunch, refreshments, and excellent teaching. You can find registration details and more information on our website, beesondivinity.com slash events. Now, Kristen, will you please introduce today's guest and get our conversation started? Thanks, Doug. I'm glad to introduce today's guest. We have the Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates with us in the studio. He is pastor of Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago, a historic church there, and he is married to his wife, Kirsty, and they have two children, Charlie and Claire. Welcome, Dr. Dates. Thank you so much, and thank you, Dr. Sweeney, as well. Appreciate you all for having me. Yeah, it's such a joy to have you on campus and to meet you in person. And we always begin these podcasts with a brief introduction. We want to get to know you better. So if you could introduce yourself, uh, where are you from? How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And anything you want to say about how God called you to ministry? Sure. My name is Charlie Dates. As you said, I am born and raised in Chicago on the far south side of Chicago. And I had the privilege of growing up in a home of believers. My mother, my story is kind of like Timothy in the sense that Paul says to Timothy, I'm confident that the faith that dwelt in your grandmother and your mother lives in you. Uh, My grandmother, uh, Bernice Dates, who's gone home to be with the Lord now, uh, was uh, one of the Lord's most challenging converts. Um, <laughs> I'd like to say to be a silly about it. She had a fire in our family, which was uh, amazing and warm and still lives on in us. And then my mom, uh, who's yet with us, is uh, a woman of faith. And so I came to faith early in life, and not only by precept, but by example, too. Mom taught us to pray, taught Sunday school in our church. She didn't teach my Sunday school class, but she taught Sunday school. She's also a Chicago public school teacher for a while. And so there were three of us. I'm the the baby boy, but she insisted 
that whatever we did in school, extracurricular activities and the other, that we committed some time to the ministry in the local church. So I don't really have a time in life where I remember not being connected or serving in a local church. And uh, that that is a heritage that I have. And yet it's a faith that I own. You know, in your book, Dr. Sweeney, The American Evangelical Story, you dedicate the book to your parents and Mm -hmm. you say something like, I'm thankful for my evangelical heritage. I resonate with that, that that there's a line in my family, as far back as I can see, of people who've trusted Christ and have given their lives in some way to ministry in the local church. Charlie, you and I met long ago uh, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I was a young professor and you were an even younger student. (laughs) And I am grateful for our many years of friendship and partnership in the gospel. But I mentioned that to our listeners uh, to set up the next question. Why'd you go to Trinity? Trinity's a largely, they try to be as multi-ethnic as they can be, but it's still a largely white Mm -hmm. seminary. Could you just say a little bit about why the Lord took you there? Uh, And then if you're willing, what do you want pastors in training or prospective pastors to know about the importance of theological education? My, my. So first of all, you kind of understated it. Dr. Sweeney, for those of you who are listening to this, is the earthly human reason, this is the truth, and why I'm Dr. Charlie Dates. So he is uh, my first reader on my dissertation. And at a time when I needed some direction, some clarity and some fire, uh, Dr. Sweeney put his foot down and helped me to, to get it done. I still remember some of those first drafts of some of those chapters with all those red marks on it with uh, using African-American with a dash or without a dash, knowing when to make it (laughs) adjectival or some kind of modifier. Thank you for that. And so I would like to think providentially that your ministry is part of the reason why I ended up at TEDS. But I I went to TEDS with really no real intention of going to Trinity. I was listening. I have a picture of of you teaching in class. I was showing the kids uh, back on the first day of the year Hmm. from Oh, I guess 2004, a uh, long time ago now. I had no intention of going. I wanted to go to Yale. I had been admitted to Yale Divinity School. And you had done some work in the Edwards archives there as well, I came to know after a while. And I got a full ride to do a master's in human resource management and industrial relations at Illinois. All of that to say, I had no intention again on going to TEDS. I felt called to preach and to pastor, but I didn't want to face all of the trouble that a pastor, particularly pastors I had seen, go through in the context of a local church. And so I tried to strike a deal with God. If you let me go a professional route, have a good career, raise a family, I'll be the best help and support a pastor could ever have. And I preach too, you know, that's what you called me to do. But the Lord wrestled me down. And it's actually Dr. Dwight Perry, who's the first African-American PhD out of Ted's, who introduces me to Trinity and uh, gives me that kind of connection. And so I uh, went to undergrad at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. It was relatively accustomed to surviving and trying to thrive in predominantly white environments. It's kind of the plight of being black in America in a real sense. You, you've got to know how to survive outside of your context. And so academically, I learned how to survive and to thrive But the white evangelical context is a little different. It's a bit more conservative than, say, the white liberal context uh, where I studied in undergrad. And and Ted's kind of is on an island. It's in a very wealthy part of Illinois, down the street from the old Jordan estate 
and the houses around look nothing like campus. <laughs> so, so it was not only a white conservative institution, it was also a, a wealthy part of our state. So there were multiple adaptations that had to be made. I think one of the challenges for me was uh, not having what I thought was a sufficient representation of the faculty. So we had more African-American students on campus than I originally anticipated, but we had fewer African-American professors. So I think I had Bruce Fields and Crawford Loritz were the, the two black professors I had. And the challenge that that can give in an evangelical situation, and by the way, I should say by evangelical, I don't mean kind of right-wing Republican uh, Christianity, as it, as it were. I mean more so the broader breadth of gospel representation. So Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists, you, you run the gamut uh, there. That, that kind of wider, broader breadth. The deal is, at a school like that, you can start to think that all of the theology composed and the books written and the education to be attained comes out of a kind of white male space. And that's not true, but that's that's the impression that you can get when your professors kind of all share that cultural background. But God was gracious to me, as I am sure he has been gracious to many others who, who have come through. And that is God has given me relationships that extend beyond the cultural predispositions I had coming in. Uh, did not make the force of the gospel any less strong. In fact, I felt like even in our relationship, Doc, the gospel came to power in more manifest ways in my life uh, but because it was with you that I read James Cone, you know, and, and got a chance to process through. We talked about your days at Vanderbilt and the beauty of being able to read broadly and to question context, even our own context at TED's. Without being ungrateful for it, we were able to, to question it freely. I remember uh, I took, I forget what I took Woodbridge for. It was one of the history courses. And I wanted to, to talk more about the civil rights movement because it was like a blurb in one of the days. And uh, in his own Woodbridgean way, uh, he, mm, he made that face. And the next semester, some of the students that were taking this class told me his syllabus changed. And he told his students, that it was our conversation that prompted the changing of that, that syllabus. And, and so I found remarkable grace in that space. I also need to say, I did not feel the pressure to be white. Not that I was ever going to be, but I, but I didn't feel that. I felt the freedom to be who I am, what God is making me to be, to explore it. But I got the biblical underpinnings of the rich faith that I own in, in ways that are layered and textured at TED's. So I don't know if that answers your question, but but it was a rich time for me, and mm -hmm. God used it as a means of grace in my life. Let's continue uh, this, this theme of theological education and uh, being a minority in a predominantly Anglo-American space. Uh, earlier today, you met with uh, some of our students who are part of our newly formed Minority Student Fellowship, now called All Saints Fellowship. Yeah. And so uh, you had the opportunity to meet with them over lunch and have a conversation. What words of encouragement did you share with them as being students, minority students in a predominantly Anglo-American space? And then 
what might you want to say to seminaries like Beeson or TEDS as we think about how we can better care for and create spaces for minorities? So that was a long lunch. I, I, it'd be hard to <laughs> summarize in a few moments what was said, but I, but I think to the question of that came up there and that often comes up in contexts like these, you know, people tend to say, is Christianity a, a white man's religion? And and that's because of the, I call it a kind of theological imperialism, just a lack of hearing from ethnic minorities, as it were, at the, the table where theology is composed and where doctrine and the relationship of doctrines to one another are formulated and dispensed. There is, in a real sense, more black presence at some of our evangelical schools than there uh, might be at some of our more, quote, liberal or progressive, unquote, schools. Which, by the way, I think the word evangelical is beautiful. I think the church should have it. I also think the word liberal and progressive, they, they are beautiful, and, and they, the church should have those, too. But, but whereas some in the liberal and progressive corridors, as it were, a part of the academy, point their finger at, the, at black people in evangelical spaces and decry our supposed captivity to white theology. I think those in the progressive and liberal corridors need to know how much of their theology comes from the, the German Enlightenment, from the European Enlightenment period. I, I, I don't know that they have reckoned with the fact that we are all impressed upon one another when, and what I told the students today, much of our faith is anchored in North Africa and West Africa. So I think that the black student in environments like this and like Ted's have a clearer line to trace back theologically to black and brown skinned people in the early centuries than they do at other institutions. Now the challenge is, like I just talked about Ted's, is the underrepresentation of persons like myself in the faculty um, in administration, and hopefully that that will change. But I, I sought to encourage them that really, in my opinion, in terms of serving the church, a high view, a high Christology and a high view of, of the scriptures combined with an open understanding of culture and the social structures and systemic injustice and a resistance against systemic injustice is what the church needs. That The church needs persons who come out of the academy with a blazing heart and passion and a bright mind and a surrendered heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what can Ted's and Beeson do? I, I think what Dr. Sweeney did with me and for me, you got to push and make room for uh, students like me to do research degrees. And as God calls us, keep the door open at the academy so that, that we could have a foot in the church and a foot in the academy. I told Kiersey actually before I came up, I said, dear, I, this place is beautiful. I think I could come here in so many years. Uh, I can't say how many years people from my church may hear this, but um, <laughs> but I do think that we've got to produce scholars, and and then we have to make room for scholars. And there are challenges that come with that, but there's nothing we cannot face. That said, the world is open. I think America, the landscape of America, is changing and is ready for revival and revolution from within the church. And, and who better than schools like Beeson and Ted's and others who are committed to the gospel to be at the center of that? So, Pastor Dates, in your answer to the, the last question from Kristen, you talked about the positive use of the word progressive. And I thought, hey, that's a good segue to the next question <laughs> I want to ask him about. 
uh, and that has to do with the congregation you serve in Chicago, oh, yeah. which is called Progressive Baptist Church oh, yeah. Chicago, a church that I love and know, but you love and know even better than I do. So twofold question. Number one, how'd you get to Progressive? And number two, what's it like serving at such a historic congregation in Chicago? The answer to number one, still trying to figure that out. How, how, do, how do we get to Progressive? So I served you know, at a church that is absolutely humongous in Chicago, the Salem Baptist Church of Chicago, for five years before I became pastor at Progressive. And I felt called, I've always felt called, to serve in a pastoral capacity. Kirsten and I were given a number of invitations to leave Chicago, but we felt like God was opening a door for us there. And so this is a church that is uh, 101 years old now. And I came in 2011 as her youngest senior pastor in that church's at that time, rich 93 year history. Uh, <laughs> and that's a perilous work for a young guy going into an old historic church. But those people have been so kind and open-hearted and open-handed and generous with us. And we've seen the church bounce back to life. It, it was probably when we came about 150 people on a Sunday morning, average age, Jarvis Sanford, who was the chairman of our deacons at the time, said it was about 65. He joked with Kiersey and I when we came. She was 29. I was 30. And uh, he said, by, by just you guys coming, you're dropping the average age to 45. You know? <laughs> so uh, we've seen the church just grow uh, both in number and in depth and get back on mission. So I, having served, this is how I, I think it happened. Having served at Salem, I was preaching on a regular basis and, and the services at Salem are televised live. And so the people at Progressive were watching me grow and preach. And I'm told that some of them would say things like, he sure would be an ideal pastor for us. I didn't have any of that in mind. I'm grateful for the call though. Glad that I've been given the chance to serve, and it's been a wonderful journey. You mentioned preaching, and you um, delivered an excellent sermon today. And Thank you, Kristen. You, you also lecture around the country regarding the topic of the African-American preaching tradition. Uh, I should also mention to our listeners that you write the preface to a newly published book on preaching entitled Say It, Celebrating Expository Preaching in the African-American Tradition. So for those listening who are not African-American, I wonder if you could um, explain or tell about the rich history of expository preaching in the African-American uh, church and how it's different than, let's say, white expository preaching. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I should say um, kudos to Dr. Eric Redman for uh, his hard work in putting that book together. I, I did the preface and another chapter inside the book and uh, served on his editorial team. And there's so much that that book has to offer and so much more that works like it need to contribute. It's essentially a compilation of sermons from some of the best expositors in black preaching today. It's, But it's just a swath. I mean, it's like run, run, rubbing a cotton swab in your mouth. It, it doesn't at all get to the totality of the breadth that's available. And uh, I so whereas on one hand, I applaud uh, Dr. Redman and I'm grateful to be a part of it. I, I think there's so much more that needs to be said and so much more that needs to be done. I'm a budding church historian. Right. So he's the amen. He's, he, yeah, he's, a, he's the real one. I, I'm a budding church historian. And one of the things that matters to me as a church historian is context and being able to connect the dots. 
I, I wouldn't talk about black exposition as a genre of preaching apart from biblical preaching in the black church context. That That is the narrative out of which many of us have come to faith and many of our churches have handled the Bible. In other words, some of the best black preaching has not been exposition per se, historically speaking, but it's been thoroughly biblical preaching. And when you look at the history of Christianity in the world, I mean, some of the best preaching and teaching we've had, non-black has not been expositor. I mean, Charles Spurgeon was not an expositor. He was a Bible preacher, but he was an effective Bible preacher. So I want to be clear that I don't elevate exposition um, to some category that condescendingly looks down upon other forms of biblical preaching. It's just my preferred way of preaching because I think it gets at explaining the context or the passage within its context so as to get to the intended meaning that the Holy Spirit gave the author. And and so part of the beauty of that kind of preaching in the black context is at least threefold. Number one, preaching in the African-American experience and expositional preaching has had to be concerned both with the slavery of sin and the sin of slavery. We, we've had to give our attention both to the depravity of mankind and the injustices of systems that bind and oppress people. And even in our meeting today with your students, one of them was talking about how from their context, they read the book of Exodus different from the way it had been taught in some classes at times. And that's because the history of our people is one that emerges out of recent bondage. That's a gift. That's a gift. And I I think because of the, the existential lived experience of black people in America, we bring to the proclamation, a textured experience with the God of liberation. So he is both a liberator from sin, but he's also our only hope for liberation in these yet to be United States. Number two is, I think exposition in, in the black context, preaching in the black context, majors in both proclamation and explanation. I think the way that a lot of people are trained to preach in evangelical seminaries. They're trained to explain the Bible. And so you get up and really you're just, and it's not so much a running commentary, but I mean, you know, you're saying this is what's here, this is what this word means, and you're showing an idea, maybe even a linear thought. Man, we don't give a care about uh, stopping there, I should say. (laughs) The, the, The preacher's job is to gather the information to the point where it serves for proclamation. And so when I get up to preach, I'm thinking, what does this passage demand of me? What worship does it claim from my heart? And what attitude does it shape in my mind? And I'm seeking to deliver the authority of God's word in a way where it changes the lives of the people who hear. So I'm not getting up to explain so much as I'm getting up to proclaim. That's not unique to black preaching. It's just part of, I think, the gift that black preaching illustrates. The the other thing that I would say is that there is um, there is celebration in black preaching beyond the climactic conclusion of the sermon, the the hooping. But hopefully you felt even in my preaching today a kind of joy that emerges from walking with God and the God of the Bible, and even a joy amid the dissatisfaction of life where you know things aren't changing as rapidly as as they want in America, as we need in America, not in a positive direction. And yet we have a real hope and a real joy anchored in God and from his word. So this morning in 1 Peter, you know, Peter's writing 
to a church besieged by conflict, but, but he's writing to a people who have joy and who are tethered to one another and commending that joy based upon something that extends beyond their present circumstances. And so I think black preaching has done that. And I think really black preaching can it turns in on America, on the American church and witnesses that you can thrive on the margins. You don't have to be at the center of power. You don't have to be at the seat of government. I mean, for what we're saying, for what is genuine Christianity in America today, it's not sitting at the seat of power. I mean, I wouldn't call the Christianity that's pushing Mr. Trump, with all due respect to your listeners, as as like the real thing. Uh, but but I would say even when those in power disregard the historical faith, we still can make it and we still can thrive yet on the margins. And that's part of what the witness of black preaching bequeaths to the larger American church. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dates, the people listening to us who've been around Beeson for a long time know well that you are not the first fine African-American preacher That's who right. has preached That's at right. Hodges Chapel. <laughs> uh, many others have gone before you. I'm thinking of Gardner Taylor, huh. James Massey, uh, our own Dr. Smith, Ralph West. Last week, Kokesha Bailey Robinson, Maurice Watson, lots of others as well. And uh, they have had a big salutary effect on Beeson Divinity School and uh, the training of its preachers. But with them in mind and with you here with us, uh, we wanted to ask you, maybe for people especially who, who know a little bit but not a lot about the traditions of African-American preaching and want to know more, what preachers should they be listening yeah. to? Yeah. And if this isn't too complicated, which are the ones that really have had the biggest um, shaping influence on your own life? Sure. So I would say that preaching in our context is so varied. You know, I like different people for different reasons. You mentioned some of my favorites. I, I mean, Ralph West and Maurice Watson are at the top of my list, along with uh, Pastor Dr. Robert Smith and Gardner Taylor. So I would add to those Sandy Ray, William Augustus Jones. I would add S.M. Lockridge. Paul Shepard is a name that deserves to be called in, in these, this context. And uh, names like C.L. Franklin and Donald Parson and Jasper Williams and Bishop Kenneth Ulmer uh, in Los Angeles, Melvin Wade, E.K. Bailey, of course, Kokisha's father. Get everything you can that E.K. Bailey preached and everything you can that, that the others whose names I've called have preached. And then Jeffrey Johnson in Indianapolis, James Meeks, who I served with in Chicago for varying reasons. These are names that belong to the ages. B.J. Tatum, a name that's not so nationally known as some of the others, but is a classic expositor down at the Canaan Baptist Church in, in Urbana, Illinois. Uh, so many. So specific to me, specific to me, I, <laughs> I find myself as of late to listening to some J.H. Jackson. And J.H. Jackson, as you know, presidented the National Baptist Convention for decades. He's the reason we have a progressive National Baptist Convention, mm -hmm. because the, the tenure of his presidency went a few decades too long. So, <laughs> and Jared Alcantara, who's coming to be with you, is uh, writing a book right now on J.H. Jackson. So maybe in a year or so, that will be available. But he was a silver-tongued orator, 
Oh, my. I mean, the reason he kept getting elected, by the way, which I hope Jared covers in his book, is because when when people came to the convention to put him out, right, to elect someone else, they made the mistake of letting him preach the night of the election. Mm. And he would get up and preach and people would just start weeping and they start tearing up their ballots. You know, what do we need another (laughs) president for? And he was an antagonist to the civil rights movement, strangely enough. But he was just an amazing preacher and his predecessor. L.K. Williams at the Olivet uh, Baptist Church in Chicago was was an even more remarkable preacher. He had an untimely death, died on a plane going to Michigan, a campaign for a Republican congressman of all people. Uh, But he he was just a brilliant mind, brilliant mind in Chicago. So J.H. Jackson, L.K. Williams are some. I also think that William Augustus Jones, whose name I just called. Uh, who pastored in New York along with Sandy Ray and Gardner Taylor? Oh man, those their mansions will be big in heaven. Mm. You know, just yeah. and the recordings of some of the sermons of the men you just mentioned are are available on if YouTube. People want to go even. and listen. Yeah, on YouTube even, or you could go to Concord uh, Church in in Brooklyn, New York, to to get whatever you can of Gardner Taylor. You can uh, go to Judson Press and get some there. But the J.H. Jackson that I've been listening to is is on YouTube mainly. You can go to the Chicago History Museum, which is across the street from the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and you can pull up uh, some of his papers and some of his other work there. And then E.K. Bailey, you still can get through Sheila Bailey Ministries, a lot of his material. Uh, So A. Lewis Patterson, though, is another name that that absolutely... A. Lewis Patterson and E.K. Bailey are kind of the godfathers of exposition, a popularized exposition in the African-American preaching context. But I think Paul Shepard's father, uh, who pastored in Philadelphia, I can't uh, pull his name down right now, was doing exposition before A. Lewis Patterson and E.K. Bailey. This is what I'm saying. There are names, Mm -hmm. and and if you guys get to talk to Paul Shepard, he would gladly tell you, but there are names of pastors who were doing amazing exposition in the black community before it hit like the National Baptist Convention level. It's just fantastic. Reverend Dates, take us to Hodges Chapel for just a moment. Uh, earlier today, you, as I've already said, you del- delivered a wonderful sermon on First Peter 1, 22 through 25. We'll have it on our website later. But for those listening who weren't at the service today, uh, could you uh, summarize Uh, your message for for them or uh, bring out some of the points that you were trying to make that you felt like God was speaking through the text. Take you to Hodges Chapel is is what you just said. (laughs) Let me tell you, if you're listening to this and you've not been to Hodges Chapel, you need to find a plane to Birmingham. What a beautiful space. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the first time I ever preached with uh, Chris Sostom. uh, right at at my feet while I was preaching. Did Uh, he help? It was it was a fantastic experience. Well, so Dr. Sweeney sent me this list of passages, right? And I got a chance to pick from them and coming. And First Peter 1 happened to be on there. And I was very grateful for it because in my travels, if I if I don't have to write a new sermon, it's very, very helpful. So we preached through First Peter at Progressive about two and a half years ago. And Peter argues at the end of that heavy emphasis on doctrine that the the truest indicator if the orthodoxy we claim has a hold on us is the way in which we love one another. That's the essence of, of the message. The, the text argues 
that what salvation produces in the heart of the Christian is a love, an ardent, fervent love for others in the local church. But it goes on to argue, Peter goes on to argue that that's what salvation produces. But what produces our salvation is the living and enduring word of God. And that word has power. I just did my best to explain that that word outlives us. It outlasts every great civilization. And in spite of our temporal nature as human beings, we have a chance to touch something that lasts forever, to be a part of something that is eternal and to have our own lives made eternal through the seed which birthed our salvation. And that is the word of God. So I get excited just talking about it. I really do. There's no other book in the world like the Bible. It just isn't. Uh, it, it is authored by God. You know, it, it reads us. And, and so it's, it's the way in which we come to know God more fully and to walk with his spirit. That's what I tried to communicate today. It was a wonderful sermon. If you are not in chapel today, please rush to the Beeson YouTube site and listen to it. You will be blessed, I promise you. Charlie, we're almost out of time. Uh, can we conclude by just um, giving our listeners a few words about what the Lord is doing in your life these days? Do you have any words of encouragement for people you probably not even met but are listening to you now and are going to go listen to your sermon? Uh, what's God's doing and what uh, what do you want them to know about the Lord's work in their lives? Yeah, I would say thank you for that and thank you for this time. I would say that as a Christian, you are never hopeless or helpless. If you ever get to rock bottom, the good news is there's a rock at the bottom, and his name is Jesus Christ. And regardless of the vicissitudes of life, the challenges that life brings, we have that stability. We have that great hope, even in the face of death. And so take courage and journey on. Mm -hmm. The night may be long, but the morning is sure to come. God has a way of bringing beauty out of ashes and joy out of our pain. Mm -hmm. So trust him. For that. And I think what the Lord is doing in my life is he's taking me to places like Beeson. I mean, this has been great. It really has. I, I've been just kind of all over seeing God's work in varying parts of the country. And I'm encouraged to know that God is at work in places I would not even assume to think he's at work. And so that inspires my own work in Chicago. We are building out what we call now the Progressive Center for Counseling and Justice. It's our church's own counseling center, which provides some mental health services, will provide some mental health services to people within walking distance in our community. And it'll also do some neighborhood rally organizing kind of things to bring much needed uh, things to our neighborhood. And so I'm excited for that. I'm excited to see our gospel footprint increase and uh, hopeful to introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ through the ways in which he practically changes their lives. Uh, my family's growing. I mean, we're not having any more kids right now. I should be clear about that. Uh, but our children are growing and Kirstie's th uh, thriving. And, and so we're, we're going to hold on and see what the end's going to be. That's wonderful. You have been listening to Dr. Charlie Dates, pastor of Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago, a dear friend of mine, a fine preacher, Charlie, thank you so much for being with us thank this week. Thank you, Dr. Swain. Uh, God bless you, and God bless all of you who are listening to us. Thanks for being here. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. 
Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.